0: Tonight's program is brought to you by the China Hockey Group. The CHG is a family-focused group of ice hockey leagues, training programs, and community initiatives. They focus on the growth of hockey in Hong Kong and southern China, as well as the development of student-athletes, where sporting goals are achieved alongside educational pursuits. The CHG is comprised of a number of hockey programs. Established in 2011, the CIHL is Hong Kong's elite adult hockey league. The Junior Tigers program is Hong Kong's premier youth hockey organization, featuring the Scotia Bank Island League and Learn to Play and Learn to Skate programs. The SCIHL is an adult league for those seeking a more recreational experience. In addition, the CHG showroom is the exclusive reseller of Bauer and Warrior hockey equipment. ...and offers services including skate sharpening and fittings. For more information and links to their social media sites, go visit ChinaHockeyGroup.com. That's ChinaHockeyGroup.com.
1: Hey hockey fans, welcome to Across the Pond Hockey Talks Volume 44. I'm very excited to be here today with my very special guest, all the way from Winnipeg, Manitoba. This guy has been all over the world uh, playing hockey, supporting hockey, promoting hockey. Um, He's currently uh, the host of the Gooch Live, which is an incredible podcast, which I've been very fortunate to be a part of, and I want to welcome to Across the Pond Hockey Talks, Mr. Kerry Goulet. How are you, Gooch?
2: I am feeling fantastic. Uh, I'm honored to be on your show. I've listened to it. Uh, Jordan LaRosh and John got me hooked on it. So, uh, really excited
1: to be here. Oh, well, thanks for taking the time, Kerry. I know you're a very busy man. Uh, your presence um, in the social media world and in the podcast world has been, uh, you know, you've been a busy man the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, I've been very fortunate as well to be on your show. And I know all the hard work that you guys put into it. Uh, you and Jordan LaRoche. Why don't we start right off the bat with a little uh, thank you to Jordan LaRoche, actually, who uh, who introduced me to you and um, is the co-host on Gooch Live. Just tell me a little bit about your relationship with Jordan uh, to kick things off here, Gooch.
2: Yeah, well, as you know, Jordan played hockey in Hong Kong and Asia and all throughout the world. Uh, uh, he had suffered a concussion over here in in uh, London where he was uh, going to school. And uh, John, his father, got a hold of Dan Blackburn, who had helped uh, uh, John, uh, Jordan actually uh, become a better hockey player, goaltender, of course. And John called Dan, and Dan, of course, and I, very good friends, one of my uh, all-time greatest mentors. He's just uh, an incredible guy to be around. He had told John, listen, you've got to get a hold of Gooch. Uh that's my nickname of course. And he's he knows uh the concussion space because he started stop concussions with Keith Primo and Wayne Primo and he'll be able to direct the traffic. And John got a hold of me. I got him straight to Guelph with Scott Holler from Shift Concussion Management and basically uh helped Jordan through a very dark time. And about three years after that, uh I got a call from John saying, Hey listen, uh Jordan is um has uh got through his schooling. And he's really interested in possibly interning with the company. And I thought of you, Gucci, I wanted to come and be a part of your great organization because I want to teach him how not to do it. And I, thought, <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. And, and uh, because obviously I'm unconventional. I'm, I'm not very schooled. Uh, you know, I use the old adage. I, I got to grade 12, but that's grade 6. Point. So I'm really just out of the box, right? I, you know, here I am at 62, Facebooking, and TikToking, and Twitching, tweeting, and all these other crazy things. Who would have thought it? Uh, but I've been blessed and, and having Jordan join us and be the producer of the shows. And we're doing so many great things. And, and 2022 is just going to be an absolute uh, phenomenal year for us and I got to say uh, without Jordan getting concussed uh, some of this could not be possible so thank you Jordan for doing that and thank God he's uh, better and, and of course uh, has introduced me not only to you but uh, great people all around the world.
1: Well, it's been an incredible match so far, Carrie, and uh, you know if people can't tell already, your passion and your enthusiasm for hockey just kind of bleeds out of you, and it's really fun to listen to you guys, and you're doing a great job. So, congratulations on the on everything you guys have been doing, you and Jordan, and uh, let's get right into the life of Carrie Goulet here, folks. Um, I'm really excited to have you here, Carrie, because I know you've You've been all around the world and you do so much for the game, but I want to take you back to a young Carrie Goulet growing up in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Tell me a little bit about your childhood and when and and how you fell in love with the game of hockey.
2: Well, you know, as uh, all young aspiring Canadians who uh, get a stick and a ball and and an opportunity to run around hitting it uh, in in your uh, bedroom or basement or, or living room, uh, I fell in love with the game uh, from my mother, actually. A lot of people fall in love because their father played the hockey, Played hockey, and my dad didn't. He wasn't a hockey player. He wasn't much of an athlete. Uh, he worked for the Canadian National Railroad, uh, worked shift work. And my mother really became my father, and that's no discredit to my, my wonderful father who I lost back in 2011. Um, my mother was a speed skater, and had the opportunity to almost represent Canada at the Olympics. But back when she was going through her speed skating uh, world, um, they didn't have much money. And unfortunately it took money to allow you to, to move on in that sport at that time. And, and she never uh, had the opportunity to, to, to live that dream. Uh, and I got the opportunity to go uh, skating with her and because she was a speed skater, Uh, You know, she had those long blades and, and, you know, those long strides. And I was probably three years old, just almost just walking, if I recall it correctly. And I remember a vivid uh, memory of it, not so much skating with her, but freezing on the back end of a scarf that was wrapped around her hips as she was skating in the St. Patel Park, which had a figure-eight outdoor uh, skating facility, and I was there with this scarf around her waist, and I had those uh, double blades on each skate, and I remember her pulling me around like I was on a toboggan, and it was that that really gave me the, 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 the love of skating first, obviously the experience of being outdoors, Uh, A lot of people have not had the opportunity to do that. And that was where the love affair with skating came. And obviously my mother was a speed skater, so I had some natural ability. And once I went up until grade uh, to the age of six, I I was already a very good skater because my mother was already teaching me. Uh, The game became easy for me in the sense that if you can skate, um, all the rest is comes naturally. Absolutely, uh, you know you got to learn how to be a goal scorer, and you got to learn how to shoot a puck and pass a puck. But if you can skate, as you know, it's a huge difference. So that's that's the first memory of it. And plus, living in Winnipeg back then, uh, you know, summer was short, winters were long. I lived in a uh, an area where there were six outdoor rinks at the Winnaqua Community Club. So for me to get to school, I had to crawl over six outdoor rinks. So we would take our skates and our sticks and we'd be on the ice more than we were actually in school. So uh, I was blessed. I was, I was given a lot of opportunities that a lot of people weren't given.
1: That's incredible. I mean, the stories of like, I know my old man tells me stories about going to the rink, like the playing in the outdoor rinks beside his school and at lunchtime and stuff like that. I mean, those are stories, things that you don't hear very often anymore. It's nice to hear um, some of those old tales. So, uh, Gooch, you're playing.
2: If you don't mind, mind me just adding one real quick part to this. Yeah, go right um, ahead.
1: It's all you, um, buddy. My last,
2: my last, yeah, my last name's Goulet, so I'm supposed to speak French. That's right. My father uh, was a Frenchman, and my mother was Scottish, and my mother won out the word of the English so, uh, still. We spoke a lot of English in our household, so my <laughs> French class uh, in, in junior high was the first class every day in the mornings, and we would get caught uh, at the rink. So we'd wake up in the morning, we'd sneak out early. We'd, a bunch of us would be playing hockey, you know, shinny hockey on the pond. And uh, I can't tell you how many times I had the, either the principal or my mother and father or one of the stu- teachers coming over and, you know, during the French class saying, guys, you got to go to school. And so I never learned French. Because I was too busy playing hockey, so, and that's a true story. Uh, you know, a lot of people uh, don't realize that the love of hockey once it's in you, it's really tough to take out of it. And you could do it 24 hours a day. And you know, I was caught as a young boy, you know, sleeping in my hockey gear. So those are those are stories that a lot of people hear, and they say, "Ah, come on, that's not true." But when you hear it a bunch of, about some of these older <coughs> NHL, it's absolutely true.
1: Well. <coughs> As a teacher, and, and uh, especially as a French teacher myself, um, I'm, uh, I, don't, I don't condone skipping class to, to play hockey, but if you're ever going to have an excuse, uh, that's the right one to have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Guch, uh, you started playing minor hockey at what age? And uh, when did you start you know, developing as a player and realizing that you uh, could maybe go on to have a career playing hockey?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I do, It's it, as in anything, you know, there's not a lot of pictures. Uh, there's not a lot of film of any of the things that I did because, you know, being 62. Uh, but what I do remember is um, around the age of six, we started to skate full full rink outdoors at the Winacro Community Club. And I can remember those days, early morning practices, where I'd get my dad and we'd be in that wood hut where they had the oil burning uh, furnace. And my dad would take those gray socks off. I don't know if you remember those gray gray socks (laughs) that we used to have back then inside my skates. And him taking them off and me crying and him rubbing my feet, uh, my toes, to get the skates back on so I could go out and play again. And then my mom, of course, being there with, you know, warm soup and and, 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 uh, hot chocolate. I remember that. So it was at the age of six where I started to play. And because I was already a good skater, I was better than uh, you know 90 percent of the kids. Not better uh, maybe talent-wise yet, but certainly as a skater because I was given that early start. And I'd say by about 10 o'clock, uh, 10 10 years old, uh, there was uh, you know on the team. Let's say there was 20 players. There were three of us that were exceptionally good uh, because we just we were on the ice together. All the time, and one of the kids was named Terry Tatum, an unbelievable hockey player who I thought would have made it to the National Hockey League, uh, but didn't. Later in his his life, uh, and um, it, it was just the three of us. We were, you know, the three stooges, and everything revolved around hockey. And when we got to to twelve, uh, a lot of my coaches saw that myself and Terry were so good and so above the other players on our team, that they would say, you know, pick the puck up behind the net if you get a chance and you two go up and score goals. And it almost became uh, insulting at the end of it when I look back that I wish I would have learned how to be a little bit more of a teammate at that time, you know, because we would do that. We'd go and skate through everybody, score goals. And that that we realized was not part of the game. So I was blessed later on to get a couple of very good coaches to teach me the real part of you know, the, the being a teammate. Uh, that probably happened at the age of 15 and 16. Uh, and that's where, again, I had opportunities to play at a high level, uh, AAA hockey in Winnipeg. And um, I just loved it. I loved everything about the game. Uh, I, I did not love the politics. There was a little bit more politics. Obviously, in hockey, uh, my parents' lives revolved around it. As I mentioned, my father was a shift work. So a lot of the father-son games was actually my mother playing for my father. Um, and I just remember all the great times uh, going from Winnipeg into uh, Rozo, Minnesota, Rosedale, Minnesota, playing in hockey tournaments, traveling by train, and being with my mom most of the time, uh, and uh, just enjoying every single minute up, up until I see, uh, you know, a game to do
1: you know one thing I wanted to just one thing you mentioned that I wanted to touch on, Kerry, so important that you mentioned the fact that you know growing up in small towns sometimes, you know, you can be a really good player, you can be a really big fish in a small pond, and and the fact that it took you you know a few years to learn that, and you got finally got a good coach who taught you to how to how to you know to learn the uh, the teamwork part of the game and how to be a good you know teammate. That's so important because a lot of times when you're a standout player. You don't really have those opportunities, you know, when you're really young, and that can go to guys' heads. It can really ruin people pretty easily if you let it, you know. So it's a pretty big lesson for people to learn, you know. Um, big fish in a small pond. Sometimes, um, you know, yeah, you got you got to be careful with that sometimes because it can go it can go wrong.
2: Well, that's a very good point, and I think um, obviously today with the internet and the knowledge that we're given, just on a click of a button. You know, it makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Back then, you know, is Winnipeg a small town? I, I would say not. And there were a lot of great players that came out of it. But the percentages were smaller due to the fact that, you know, you, it, it's like anything, If you get proper guidance. And because my father wasn't driven in the hockey world and my mother was a mother, uh, they were not, you know, they didn't push. They didn't, they didn't talk to the coaches. They just let me be. And so because they didn't get actively involved, sometimes I pushed you in the back, back of the bus, right? Because, yeah. you know, fathers and mothers are as natural. They want their kids to be put in the best positions. And and, and no discredit to my parents, they just felt if I was going to make it, I was going to make it sheer, um, solely on my talent. And unfortunately, that, that wasn't like that back there. There were... Situations where you needed a little bit of a push, you needed to know the right person. Uh, it's not like today where everything's on video. Uh, you're not going to miss the diamond in the rough anymore in Winnipeg or in Manitoba or in Selman Arms, uh, British Columbia. Everybody knows everybody in the space because of the, the internet so you're you're 100 like sometimes being the best player in a particular situation in those days was not always the best thing for you because yeah. it became a lot of jealousies a lot of i remember there being you know issues with my parents fighting with other parents because yeah. i got more ice time than their kid i do remember that sort of stuff and i know my mother tried to tried to protect me from it and so, yeah, that, that's a very good uh, point that uh, that
1: you make. Yeah, and I have to agree. The politics part of it is so annoying when you're a kid because you don't really understand what's going on and you can see some of these things happening with your parents and the, the stuff going on behind the scenes and you don't really understand it at that time. So, yeah, so it's, <laughs> it's tough, but I mean, it, it's the game we love and that's part of it. So... T- take me into your uh, your time playing with the uh, with the monarchs and playing junior hockey um, in Winnipeg What was it like at the time and um, tell me a little bit about the league I don't really know much about the uh, the Manitoba Junior Hockey League
2: Well it was a very exciting time with hockey and um, you know I got involved with the uh, the Saint Boniface Saints in the MJHL, the Manitoba Junior Hockey League mm-hmm. with uh, the Borger family Grant Borger who I played with his father Ralph. Uh, and his his wife, I forget her name, uh, Joyce Borger. Uh, actually, Joyce and my mother became very good friends. Uh, Borger owned a huge company called Borger Brothers, and he financed a lot of the teams. Uh, and I happened to play with Grant, and along the way, um, you know, he and I are still very, very good friends. Uh, he's still back in Winnipeg. I now live in Toronto. And uh, there was a bond that was created then. And the same bond of the sense one of, the, one of the negatives about my time was the fact that, I don't know if you knew this, but the, uh, the AAA program at Midget was actually on an outlaw league. So the Hockey Canada did not recognize AAA, and Ralph Forger had invested in this new league, and it was kind of an outlaw league, so we never got to play in the Air Canada Cup, you know, that big tournament oh, also yeah. in Quebec. Yep. We never got the opportunity to play in because we were actually on the outside looking in. And that's one of the regrets. I wish I would have been able to play in those international tournaments. At that time, it was called an international tournament, the Quebec tournament, the Wee tournament, which is huge here. And again, it was the Air Canada Cup back then for Midget. We never got a chance to do that because of the fact that um, all the politics that came And once I got through the Manitoba Junior Hockey League, um, I was asked to play with the uh, uh, Monarchs, Winnipeg Monarchs, uh, which was an affiliate of the Winnipeg uh, Clubs, which was also the Winnipeg Junior Jets at the time. It was a confusing time. And there was a guy named Jerry Brisson who owned the clubs, and he was selling the team to Calgary Wranglers, so that uh, was moving into the WHA days. Sorry, WHL, which is the Western Hockey League. Yep. And the mistake I made in my career was, I took the opportunity to go to Calgary to start with the uh, the uh, Calgary uh, Wranglers in the W in the Western Hockey League. And when the team was purchased, the team actually got on a bus and the front office and everything moved from Winnipeg. And our first stop. Uh, Was an exhibition series as we went along. And Jerry Brisson uh, was one of those guys that had favorites. And one of his favorites was his son, who happened to play my position. So I can just tell you, you know, without getting too deep into the politics, anytime that the owner's son, and he was also the coach, you know, he would, you just didn't have the same opportunities. Let me leave it at that without being uh, vindictive. So off we went. Uh, We got the brand in Manitoba playing the Brandon Wheat Kings, and in those days, they were, there was a, a, a line called uh, Prop Allison and uh, Der Lago, and they were three of the best hockey players uh, you would ever know. By Prop, obviously, you know, uh, playing for the Philadelphia Flyers, Jamie Allison, and uh, Bill Der They were the best, and we got to play against them on an exhibition game. We were down 3-1. I hadn't played in the first two periods at all. Didn't see the ice. There was a big, huge bench ball back in those days. Everybody cleared the benches. And I was in a very tough mood, I'll be honest. Yeah. I was pretty calm I just I didn't understand fighting. I mean, oh guys, it's a beautiful game. Why, we, why do we have to do that? And in the bench ball, uh, everybody grabbed somebody, partnered up. And I actually went to their bench and partnered up with their trainer because I knew I at least had a chance. And it was kind of funny that. Uh, uh, you know, I picked the smallest guy, and we kind of danced around the, the you know, the ice a little bit. And after everybody was thrown out, and needed to be, uh, I was able to play. And uh, my claim to fame is in that game playing against arguably. Three of the best players. I scored two goals, tied up in 3-3. And it was only an exhibition game. And from that game, I thought, I've made it. I've impressed yeah. everybody. There's no question I've I'm, I'm got a chance. And we drove up to it's Manitoba from Brandon. It's probably about a 10-hour bus ride. And once we got up to, uh, Brandon, uh, sorry, up to Flintlon, you know, the, uh, Bobby Clark, uh, obviously, you know that name. Yeah. Uh, Ray Ufeld was playing there. And he scared the daylights of everybody. So we're in the game again, same kind of scenario. I'm not, because exhibition games, nobody got suspended. I didn't get to play the first period. Second period, big ball again. And they had chicken wire. I don't know if you remember the oh, days yeah. when they didn't have you know glass around them. And I got out there and I got to play a little bit and scored a goal. And again, back of my mind, you know, I'm doing all the right things. And I got slashed from behind and foolishly not realizing uh, okay, I gotta show. I I, I want a beer. I gotta sh- think I'm tough. So I turned around to flash the guy back, and uh, the guy grabbed me around the throat on on my jersey, popped me in the top of the forehead. I remember my head hitting the chicken wire, and down I went, knocked out. Woke up on the bus uh, driving to uh, Saskatoon, and I remember asking the question. I wasn't out that long, but I, you know how yeah. the story goes. And I remember being on the bus and said, what the heck happened? I don't remember. I know I was in the Philly box. I know they carried me out, all that sort of stuff. Somebody said, Gooch, uh, you picked the wrong guy. You slashed Ray Newfeld." Well, Ray Newfeld happened to be one of the toughest players, not only in that league, but also ended up having a pro career in Boston. And, of course, Winnipeg, he played for the Winnipeg Jets. A tough, tough guy, very nice guy. I got to meet him years later. We kind of laughed about it. I actually had him on the show. We yeah. talked about it. And, and I'll shorten the story. So what happened is I just thought every place I went, I had an opportunity to show my skills. But the coaching staff, who was obviously uh, manipulated by Jerry Person, uh, just didn't want to see me succeed for some reason. I, I was good enough to be in the league. And when we got to Calgary, I only, if you look at my, my stats, I only played three games, and the reason I only played three games, those first three games, I didn't even get on the ice. So I made a decision, along with a couple other guys, that I wanted to be traded because I just didn't see the future there. And as you see in the playing for the Monarchs, playing for the Saints, I had okay stats. I was a good player. I was very quick. I was one of the fastest guys uh, on the ice. But my, my, my speed didn't match my thinking. My brain wasn't fast enough for my feet. And it took time, many years, for them to come together because they didn't for a long time. Uh, When I got to Europe, they finally came together, and that's why I had such a a long, industrious industrious career in in Europe. But the point from the fact that when I was in Calgary, I wasn't given the shot. I asked for a trade, and that was the demise of me playing in the WHL, uh, the Western Hockey League. I I was, there was a deal made for me to go to Billings, Montana and with another guy named uh, Bob Herzog. And uh, I can't remember the other player and Jerry Britson uh, squashed the deal. And uh, so I, he just basically said, you're going to sit, that's it. You're sitting here. And I decided to come home. I right. didn't want to go through this anymore. Yeah. So I came back to home in Winnipeg and played for the St. Boniface yells in the MMJHL, which is the Manitoba Major Junior Hockey League. And i got to tell you, that's where I learned to be humble. I learned to be more of a teammate. Uh, Though it wasn't the MJHL, which is the Manitoba Junior, it was Tier 2, I became a better player all around. Uh, I was one of the star players. I played on a great line with Ray Sabard, uh, who was – just arguably one of the best players I've ever played with. Uh, I won the scoring title that year. And it just, everything went right. And um, throughout all that, I then had the opportunity, it was my draft year, uh, I I got an opportunity through a guy named Fran Huck, who played for the national team, Canadian national team, and played uh, with the WHA Winnipeg Jets. He was a lawyer-turned-agent. He got me a tryout for the Winnipeg Jets. I didn't get drafted John Ferguson Sr. was the general manager back in 1978 when the Winnipeg Jets were going from the WHA back into the NHL, and John Ferguson Sr., if you know the name, of course, uh, from Montreal Canadiens, was arguably one of the toughest players in the National Hockey League in the history of the league. Um, He was the general manager, and I got to go to pre-rookie camp. It's like uh, almost a walk-on now. It's a... it's, they're looking for the diamonds in the rough, and I got a chance to go out there, and it was at the Winnipeg Arena, which is no longer. And it was a two-game uh, opportunity, and I thought you were there to show your talent, but unfortunately, I went 0 for 6 in the fights that I had. And what they were looking for, they weren't looking for uh, a player that had skills specifically. They were looking for a player who was talented yet was tough and and could fight and could you know be that grueling type of player because they would draft all those other type of players. And so I recall uh, after that, you know, being discouraged. And I got a call up to, to meet with John Ferguson, senior general manager. Uh, and Basically he said to me, in 1979, I've got the letters still on my wall. It's my cup of coffee from the NHL from him with the Winnipeg Jets logo and uh, inviting me to camp. And then he actually called me in the office with Fran and said, Carrie, you know what? You're a pretty talented guy. I just don't think you're tough enough to play in the National Hockey League. And that was coming out of the mouth of the toughest guy that probably played played in the NHL. And I, was, I didn't know what that meant. What did tough enough mean? And so when I went back home, and, you know, I realized that I, in those days you had to be more than just a good hockey player. You had to have grit. You had to be a fighter. And when I ended up traveling to Europe uh, later on in my life, I realized what toughness was. And because as, a, as an import, everybody was chasing around the ice. Um, so I got lucky in the sense that had, those, had that not all happened, I may never have got to Europe and experienced what I experienced. So I look back and I thank Jerry Britson actually for giving me the opportunity of not playing in Calgary. Had I stuck it through, who knows? I may have had the opportunity to play in the National Hockey League. Not sure. Can't look back. But I know for a fact that I probably wouldn't have had the the journey I did going starting out in the fourth division and ending up, you know, doing what I did in Germany. So that's kind of the junior platform, you know, not getting drafted, uh, getting an opportunity to go to a pre rookie camp, being told I wasn't tough enough to play, discouraged like anybody would be, kind of gave up the game for a year and then got back into it playing what's called senior league. It was called the cash league and I played for some great teams, a great coach, Dan Bonner. Being a player-coach, who played for the LA Kings, um, and I got lucky. I just played with some great players, won a couple scoring chances, got to Thunder Bay, where I, I was able to win an Allen Cup, and that's how my journey to Australia, uh, sorry, to uh, Germany started.
1: Well, that's quite a that's quite a story, man. I mean, just getting that getting that cup of tea. Not too many people get that opportunity, and also. Uh, You know, to continue on to play senior hockey and win an Allen Cup is not—it's one of the oldest trophies in Canada, isn't it? Um, um, I keep hearing that. uh, You know, I've seen—I've seen the the Allen Cup on TV. I've never seen it live, but I know it's a very prestigious trophy and uh, something that must have been really cool for you to be a part of.
2: Well, yeah, back in back in those, you know, the eighties, I won the Allen Cup with the Thunder Bay Twins in nineteen eighty-eight. Uh, and uh, a lot of people may or may not know, uh, when, when, I was, when my dream was done at 20, I got involved. I wanted to be an entrepreneur because obviously I didn't have a formal education, so I couldn't be a doctor, a lawyer, a dentist. So I, I had to do something. So I just fell in love with, you know, starting little businesses. And, you know, I was a typical kid that had a paper route uh, and lost money on it. But certainly <laughs> had some fun learning how to be a business kid. And um, I, I, it's too long a story to tell on this particular program, but I'll just give you the real quick nuts and bolts of it. I got involved in the DJ business uh, when I was 20. And it was through a friend of mine. I was still playing junior hockey. He needed some money for his little business startup, so I gave him some money to do it, and uh, it was my, my per diem that I was getting playing junior hockey. And uh, a guy named Donnie Morrill, and he one day needed a DJ because he was sick. So he asked me to fill in and I'd never done it before. So here I am being a DJ uh, for a function. And I really liked it. So as things turned out, I was still playing hockey and I got involved in this business with him and got lucky with all the things that happened. We ended up uh, owning a, a nightclub, the first dance bar in 1982 in Winnipeg called Fridays. Uh, and it was a big hit. And so while I was, uh, owning the club with another guy. Um, you know, they lapsed their life span, you know, five to six years in those days. And I ended up then getting an opportunity to get involved with a guy named Nick Davidson, who owned a nightclub in, in, in Thunder Bay. And because Thunder Bay had such a great senior team, I played for the uh, Winnipeg, uh, sorry, the Mohawks, St. Boniface Mohawks. I played for the St. James Flames, where I won the scoring title off a slap shot. The last point I got. There's a slap shot off my bum from Bobby <laughs> Hall Jr. No, Not Bobby, way. Hall, Bobby Hall Jr. son. And Bobby Hall Sr. was at the game and grabbed my Christian 1000 that would stick with the big banana and he signed it. And it's actually sitting in the archives at the Hockey Hall of Fame with Bill Pritchard. So that's, that's a story. In itself. Wow. Um, but um, yeah, so then from there, Uh, You know, obviously getting to Thunder Bay, winning the Allen Cup. I I still own the club. Uh, It was called Club Soda. And Dick Davidson was my partner. He was the older man. He was the money guy. Um, I I never thought I'd ever lead this guy. But through the Allen Cup, the night we won it, Burton Cummings was playing at the bar that we had. And we partied that night with the Allen Cup and Burton Cummings and McClain and McClain. And it just so happened, you know, it was a long night. All the boys were there from the team. Very good friend, Mark Backer and Larry. uh, uh, Gosh, I can't remember all the names right now, but uh, uh, it was just an incredible evening. And I was sitting in the office uh, late that night and I got a call. It was about two o'clock in the morning. Again, we didn't have cell phones, don't forget. So the phone rang and it was a guy named uh, Luke Wilson. And he said, in, in a, in a, I thought it was a German accent. Uh, hey, Kerry, uh, I'm an agent for teams in Europe. I saw you play last night, uh, with the Allen cup, uh, winning team from, uh, Thunder Bay. I got this number from a person at the party that was going on. And I just wanted to know if you would be interested in talking to me tomorrow morning. And, uh, I said, sure, why not? So the next morning, we had a cup of coffee, and that's where he had told me that he thought I had an opportunity to go to Europe. I was 27 at the time. Uh, I had a beautiful uh, girlfriend from Thunder Bay, um, and she uh, was not very excited that I was getting an opportunity possibly to go to Europe. So I went and had coffee with him. He had found a team in Fife, Scotland, uh, In I, I don't remember the league, but one of the perks was I would be able to play one time a week on the uh, St. Andrews main course, and once a month, you know, once a month on the St. Andrew big course, and <laughs> once a week on the practice course. And that was a pretty big uh, incentive and a little bit of money. And I was so excited getting this offer. I'd never made, as you know, I never got paid to play in, in senior hockey. You got a snippet; it was not you know, thousand bucks a week. In those days, it sounds like a lot, but you know, it's not a lot of money. And so I thought, wow, I'm going to be able to play front kind of paying fans that want to watch me play. I came home to my girlfriend at the time, and I explained it to her, and I was so excited. I just saw it her face. She wasn't. And she said, Carrie, you're 27. It's time for us to start a family. Continue on with your business here. I'm not interested in going. And she convinced me not to do it. Uh, I was I was you know in love and thought you know that was the right choice. Uh, I decided not to go. I phoned Luke that afternoon and, and told him the news, and he was disappointed because he thought it would be a great opportunity. Um, and three weeks went by, you know, I was kind of sad thinking, God, what have I done? Um, you know It's all I dreamed about as a kid. And I was very blessed that the phone rang again. Luke Nielsen was back in Holland where he was from and he said, "Carrie, I have got the opportunity. You can't turn down. This team in a little town called Eschweiler on the border of Belgium and Holland right on the German border needs a player. They can't afford an NHL player. They need somebody with your personality and the way you play and sales, the passion. Um, you've got to do it. And so I said, you know, I I got to talk it over with my girlfriend. He said, listen, it's okay. You've got uh, 48 hours to make a decision, and then I have to look elsewhere. I said, okay, Luke, I'll be back to you It's in, in 24 hours. So I went back to home, and she was sitting there, and I said, listen, these things don't come around twice too often, so here's the deal. I got offered to go to this little town in Eshwala, blah, 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 and she said, um, do you know where it is? And I said, no, it's in Germany. I, of course, I don't know much about it. Again, no internet. And she said, uh, I'm not sure. So I went to the library. Again, I'm not school. So I went to the yeah. library to find an atlas to find out where s one was, wow. and I couldn't find it on the map. And that's when, boom, I'm gone. It was sold. I was sold to do this. I was a Winnipeg, Manitoba kid, drank beer, ate McDonald's i would never experienced the world. I'm doing it. I came back home and told her, and she said, I'm sorry, Carrie. I just don't want to do this. Uh, I, I, she was a twin sister. She had a twin sister, and her mother was alone. And she said, I, I just don't want to leave them. So you've got to make a decision. You either stay here with me and we start a family, or you've got to choose hockey. Uh, and I said to her, quote unquote, Uh, Can you pack my hockey bag and my uh, things in the bedroom, put it in the trunk? I'm going. And I actually did it. I I left without her consent, never thinking I'd ever see her again. It was tough. And I never looked back. She came over for a few months, hated it, went back home, and then I played 16 years. So that's that's kind of the mix of how I got uh, through junior, through senior And then obviously getting over to uh,
1: Germany. That's an incredible story, I mean, all the way from, you know, you took, it looks like you took, you know, when I'm looking at your your stats from your career, it looks like you took 10 years off of hockey, but obviously you were still playing and you were still playing senior hockey, I just don't see your stats here. But uh, yeah, to go from you know being a DJ and and you know traveling around playing senior hockey around Canada and not really ever giving up on that dream is a pretty special story. And you know getting that call to go to a small town in Germany, you're, like you said, you're 27 years old at this point. Um, what are what what prospects do you have? What's your future going to be like? That's a bold move at 27 to go over to Germany. And uh, you know you started off in Eschweiler and. You know, I'm looking at it. You know, 104 points in 20 games—a pretty crazy way to start. Uh, Obviously, you got off to a to a quick start over there and uh, helped your team, and and things started, you know, improving for you right away. So, tell me a little bit about the journey you went through uh, across Germany. You know, I'm looking at your stats here. I can see that you played on many different teams. Um, You went from Germany's fourth division up to Germany's second division. You know, a couple of good playoff runs by the looks of it. Um, and you had a 99-goal season in 1997. I mean, some crazy things. That, tell me a little bit about that journey through Germany and how you ended up um, having so much success over there.
2: Well, thank you. That's very kind. Um, you know, when you look at stats, stats are sometimes deceiving. And, and um, you know, I couldn't have done any of this Without obviously, with my mother and father supporting me through giving me the the ability to do what I did. Uh, Obviously, the business part, being older, going over there with a little bit of a business background, being a, uh, I don't want to call myself a salesman, but I was able to to communicate. I could walk into a room and speak to one person or a thousand people. Uh, I was given that gift by my mother. That helped me tremendously. Again, not a lot of English spoken when I got there. So um, the long and short of it is, when I arrived in in Germany, um, it was to a fourth division team, and it was a beat up rink. Uh, it no longer stands; uh, it was torn down just last year. Um, it was something out of a movie um, because here's this small town kid. Winnipeg is not a town, but s- small mentality never left. Uh, uh, winnipeg outside of you know the typical usa uh, and maybe some vacations uh and not traveled over any of the seas here i am packing up a bag flying into ship hold at, uh 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 airport in amsterdam luke nielsen picked me up in a turbocharged Renault, and uh the rest is is a blur because I remember leaving Shiphold and traveling at speeds I never thought were possible on the autobahn and arriving to this little town uh, called Eschweiler, and it was a it was the best story a guy could have. Um, when I arrived, um, it was almost like a, a parade for me. I was Canadian, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, they didn't they didn't have a lot of Canadians in the small area. Uh, it was right on the border of Holland. So that was a good, that ended up being a big bonus to me. And again, it was before the EU was formed, So, you know, you had to show your passport to get in and out of Germany to Holland or Belgium. And, and so that was really cool. I could be in three different countries in 15 minutes and show my passport wow. five times. Wow. Uh, you had to have four different currencies. It was just a bizarre way of living and I loved every minute of it. In Germany, there was only MTV and a little bit of Sky Sport out of England. Uh, and CNN. Those were the two channels that I lived on. But I could go over the border in Holland and they, all the movies were, yeah, had, uh, Dutch subtitles. So everything was still in English. So I could actually go to the movie theaters. And the funny thing about a movie theater there is they would stop halfway through the movie and they'd have a smoke break. <laughs> uh, yeah. One of the funniest things. Yeah. So I got there, um, and they would treat me like a rock star. Uh, the other import was a guy named Joseph Chastik, uh, played for the Polish national team. And then everybody else was German. So you could only have two imports, whether that be Canadian, American, uh, a Russian, Czech. It, you could only have two of them that were non-Germans. And so um, I remember uh, specifically uh, Helmut Vienden and his beautiful wife who we lost. And that uh, were the ones that greeted me at the, at the rink. And Fossbender was the general manager. He was kind of a crusty old German, uh, I would say, almost chauvinistic. He didn't really like women. His card was more important than than his his wife. (laughs) I thought That was kind of funny. Uh, But still, it was just that whole kind of aura. I get into this rink, the place is jammed. Like, we're talking full. It it was a rink that maybe held 1,200 people, but there was, like, 2,000 people in this rink. And... um, it was like a, like a, out of a fairy tale, like, why are these people all here? So I took it to me, oh, they're coming to see gooch play. So we had a practice, went downstairs. The dressing rooms were the size of a toilet, uh, very small dressing rooms. There were 20 of us in three different, they called them cabins. So there were, they, they weren't big enough to hold the whole team. So we actually were in three different dressing rooms. And yet the only time we met as a team was when we got up to the ice surface and sat on the bench. Uh, so that was kind of a, a new, new beginning for pro hockey. And I remember getting dressed, and Joseph, of course, couldn't speak English. I couldn't speak Polish or German, nor could he speak German. Our coach was a Hungarian, uh, Peter Haida, and uh, he didn't speak very good English. So I was kind of in trouble because there were only a few guys who could speak a little bit of English. So we get upstairs because our dressing was down below. The place is rocking. Like, it's unbelievable. And I had the Jolta helmet on. it, I had the sweater tucked in the back, you know, going to They come on the ice. We're playing. They're practicing. He's blowing a whistle. We have a scrimmage. We score a goal. And the drums and the singing. And you could see, all of a sudden, one line of fans of, of would be going one way, like in a soccer game, the whole thing. And after practice, I get downstairs thinking, holy God, they came to see me. And actually, uh, my bubble was burst when I got upstairs to the press conference, and Luke sa- I said to Luke, God, did we just come and see Joseph? And I said, no, Gooch. They came here to practice for their games. And they were practicing <laughs> their routines, when they scored a goal.
1: Wow. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? They came
2: to see me, so... Well, was absolutely. They're converted soccer fans.
1: Right. So
2: everything was planned. it was it was great to watch. So anyways, long story short, i I get into the press conference and they're talking away. I still have newspaper clipping to prove this happened. Uh, uh, the press is talking. There's maybe ten or twelve press people. There's cameras and and you know news reporters. Obviously, we didn't have the internet. Um, and so, they're asking questions and the, the Foster, the president, gets up and says, okay, and now they just finished you know introducing Joseph. He wasn't quite as exciting because he was Polish, right? because I'm a Canadian. So I, they leave me to last, and I, they introduce me in German, and I hear and Kerry Goulet, and then I heard Calgary Flames, and then I heard American, and then I heard NHL player, and I'm hearing all these words while speaking speak in German, and Luke's sitting beside me, and I'm saying, Luke, you should have got the right guy. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, just go along with it. Right? Just say yes to everything. So I get up there, and they're asking me questions, and I am nodding my head, and yeah, i love to be here. Yeah, hey, great to see you. And so I'm just, i I got a shovel. I'm just throwing stuff out there. Yeah. I never said I was from America. I never said I played for the Calgary Flames, and I never said I played in the NHL. The next day, the report in the newspaper is Kerry Goulet from the Calgary Flames, the American, is here to be our first NHL
1: player. Oh, my gosh. And
2: I never really looked that down for a, for a long time because people thought I was you know, telling a story. About it. Yeah. Uh, and that's how my affair started with Germany. The unfortunate part, and the good part, is uh, two weeks into it, my second exhibition game, uh, my feet were taken out from underneath me. And I slid into the boards, uh, hurt my shoulder, and was knocked out. They had to take me to the hospital by an ambulance. Um, I was woken up in the hospital, and uh, there were five German doctors standing over top of me, obviously talking German. My German was zero, other than Hogan's Heroes. I knew what a beer was, and I knew Achtung, and I knew Schultz. So I knew that I was in trouble with these guys talking, not understanding anything. And uh, it ended up that they didn't really know what was wrong with me. And I had hurt my shoulder, and they were really concerned about it. They never did anything about my head. They never talk- I was dizzy. I, had- I was vomiting. There were issues. And they wanted to keep me in for a week. And uh, my mother was flying into Shippold Airport, which is about a two-and-a-half-hour drive uh, on Wednesday. And this had happened on the weekend. Uh, so I had decided that I was going to sneak out. In those days, he didn't have to stay under the protocols. So I couldn't get anybody to drive to Shiphold. So I snuck out, got rid of the hospital guard. Didn't want my mother to think I had turned into a doctor. So I drove to the airport, picked her up in Amsterdam, drove back home, never told the story. And on that ride home, I knew there was something wrong. There was a fog. I just didn't feel myself. However, I battled through it, played a full season, uh, and then 18 months later is when the word concussion came into my life, uh, and went through some very, very, very dark times. Uh, yeah, and that's all I got. So there
1: were no the there, there, there were no concussion spotters in the stands at, uh, in those days. No, they, <laughs> the, the
2: talk of it because I was knocked out, nobody even talked about that part of it, right. and so it was kind of blown over. And it was really my shoulder. And that's what they were mostly concerned about. But the, that's part of, it sounds bad. Again, had that not happened, I wouldn't be probably doing what I do today. Right. So then I got through it. It was, it was dark and ugly and suicidal thoughts. Uh, all the things that you hear about in concussions. This is 1989 where, you know, you sucked it up. You played through the pain. Uh, if it ain't broke, you played. And I never missed a game. I played nonstop. Uh, and, and um, you know, the story is, is very deep. So I'll, I'll leave it in the fact that I was blessed. I got through it and I got to play until I was 41. Uh, so that was at 28 when uh, all hell broke loose for me. Um, and I got through it and, and I got to play on some very good teams. You mentioned Eschweiler. The numbers, I think Elite Prospect and hockey DB don't really depict the whole whole career because at the end of my career, uh, I ended up with 2,009 points. Um, the 12 points actually were scored uh, when I was over the age of 50. Wow. So um, I had ended my career with 1,997 points. And I had retired at 41. And at 52, I went back to play in a pro game in the fourth division for the team uh, that actually they had retired my jersey in for Preston. And they they wanted to bring me back for their last season uh, game to allow me to score my uh, 2,000 point point. and wow. a dream came true. I got a goal and two assists to get my 2,000 point, which is just bizarre. Like me even telling you the story, uh, you know, it, 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 I, I can't. It's tough to even believe that it happened. My jersey was retired in 2003 with my best friend Mark McKay who came and played with me in Timmendorf, and Marvin Glaser, uh, 29, 18, and 9, were raised to the roof on the same night. I actually get goosebumps thinking about it. Our line had dominated in that city for three years, winning them two championships, and so uh, they retired our jerseys collectively, um, and so a fairy tale. Uh, And when I got the opportunity to go back at fifty two. I thought, wow, 2,000 points, that's pretty remarkable. Um, it was because of a guy named Andy Marley, who was actually a, a young kid at the time when I was playing <laughs> in my pro days. He was our stick boy. And he ended up playing for the fourth division team, and he was the guy that profited him because he always wanted to play on the same line. And um, he assisted on my goal, and I assisted on his two goals, so it was just storybook.
1: Wow, that's That in that's itself
2: crazy. is amazing. Yeah, and, and I don't tell this to brag. I tell it because I think it's important for people to realize you can do anything you believe in, regardless of your age. This was a pretty big feat when you think about it, but I had really good people around me to make it happen. But what's even more incredible is that hockey has given me so much, and that's why I'm so passionate. That's why I give back. That's why I work tirelessly with concussions. That's why I work with kids to say, your dream is never over until you say it's over. And that could have happened to me in 1979, and I could have became a car salesman or an insurance broker. But I, I believed there was something more. And in 2018, uh, my crazy co-coach from Timendorfer stand, who had suffered a major stroke and uh, lost a bunch of his memories, ended up coaching the fifth division team in Timmendorf. They had gone bankrupt and had taken it over. And the city was getting prepared to to, to close the rink. And Timmendorf, if you look on the map, is north of uh, Hamburg. It's on the Baltic Sea. It's a playground of the rich for the Hamburg uh, populace. It's a beach resort, 75 people in the winter, 7,500 people in the winter, 150,000 in the summer. It's crazy. It's L.A. only for the summer months. Yeah, Uh, And I got a chance to play there for eight years. And so to end the story on the German and all the things that happened, uh, I was gifted the fact to watch the Berlin Wall fall on November 12, 1989. I was there when the wall was uh, being uh, broken down on that day. Uh, I then was given the opportunity to go back at 59, think about this for a second, yeah. at 59 to go play a hockey game for the CET, Timmendorfer Beach, uh, I can't remember the, their particular name, but it was their uh, team at the time. And it was your Dietrich who convinced me to come back to play in February because the city was going to close down the rink and he needed some sort of marketing ploy to get the city to realize how important the game was to all those kids that lived in this small area. So we thought, why not bring back one of the city's idols to come and play? And it couldn't be a German. It needed to be a Canadian. And, of course, he called me because he knew I was crazy enough to even think of <laughs> yeah. doing this. So uh, they were playing a small team <coughs> out of Hamburg, Germany. Um, and I had flown over at Christmas time, And that's when he had convinced me to do this. And I said, you see, I've got a belly. You know, I haven't put shoulder pads on since the last time you talked to me out of the silliness. Yeah. Um, I, I can't see me doing it. These guys are 18, 19, 25 years old. I'm 59. So, said, Gooch, you've got to do it. You've got to show people you're here, to help support ice hockey. And so he convinced me. So I went back home. Uh, this was in December. I came back home. The date was set. Uh, sometime, again, my dates may be off a little bit, but sometime in February. Uh, and I went back home and I trained. I actually got into a training camp on my own. I was skating on a three-on-three rink, if you could believe it, back and forth, no equipment, just skating and skating and skating and, and talking myself through, you can do this, you can do this. <laughs> <laughs> it was almost like walking. Yeah. I should have had the mute. Would have been better. And again, I, I'm telling you a story, but it's all documented. It's not, you know, making, you know, people can make stories up. So, but yeah, I can vividly remember, you know, those nights like getting through it. So I'll speed it up. I, I, I get in shape as best of shape I can for a 59 year old fat guy. The one thing that hockey gives you is the ability, you never lose it. You, you may, your legs get old, you get slower, but your mind doesn't. And you can always figure out ways of doing it. And don't forget, this is on Olympic ice surface. So I knew I was in a little bit of trouble. So I'm flying over there Tuesday. Wednesday, there's a, a press conference. Uh, and they've got a TV crew following me around. And the reason is, not because of the hockey, but everybody's thinking, this guy's nuts. <laughs> yeah.
0: He's a
2: crazy idiot. There's no way he can not embarrass himself, basically. And we were playing a team from, as I mentioned, to Hamburg, and they were all young Russian, Russians. So they weren't a very good hockey team. So I'm, I got to set this, the table properly. Um, they were a very poor uh, lower end men's team, uh, but kids. So we, uh, Wednesday, press conference, they announced everything, and everybody's glad I'm back. And the team had fallen from you know, 2,500 fans. So roughly 300 fans a game. Uh, so things were dismal. And um, they had an announcement coming, and Guts was there. And long story, uh, Thursday, they have another luncheon, and um, the game's on Friday. And after luncheon, uh, I say, hey guys, great to be here. See you later. I'm going back to my hotel. And Yurk says, no, 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 no. There's practice tonight. I said, Yurk, there's no. There's nothing in my contract here about practice. Practice. <laughs> about practice. No. And he said, no, no, Coach, you got to meet the boys, all these kids. Some of these kids, you, you know, they got their jer- your jersey at home. They were idols and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I thought, oh my God. i got to practice and play. So I I agree. And I, I show up at practice. I'm walking into the rink, carrying my own equipment, which is um, not normal. And as I'm walking up, there's like a 300 people in a lineup to get into the building. So I get, you know, I sneak in, be, hey, that carry? and I kind of got my head in, right? Because I don't want anybody to know that I've been coming in the building yet. And, you know, I'd be standing there and it'd take forever. So I get in the building, kind of sneak in the back door, get in the dress room, and it was all held real loose. Cool. So like it was, they had cameras and people, and, and I wasn't ready for it. I I love to get in front of a camera, but I, I wasn't ready for this. It was more than what I expected. So we're in the dressing room, and there's these young kids you know, that have probably, probably dated their mother, for God's sakes, if, if I'm not mistaken, with these nice 20-year-old kids. I'm 59, and I'm just thinking, I, I've bitten off way more than I I can chew here, guys. So we get out on the, on the ice. There's 500 people in the crowd watching practice, not too dissimilar to the story I told you about Eschweiler, yeah. but ice hockey fans in Germany are crazy. European ice hockey fans, if you've never experienced it, you've never been to both, go there, guys. I, I. It's a bucket list. So now practice goes on. There's four lines, thank God. And he puts me on the second line. He doesn't want to put me on the first, and, you know, make it too, too uh, outrageous. So he gave me two young guys to play with. And uh, I just... Could not believe I'm on a practice, so I couldn't not try. Right, I, I was gonna try and fake it, so you know, I was trying to show off a little bit and all that. I get in the dressing room, everything's good. I have a beer, react, press conference. I go home, I get to the hotel, about midnight, fall asleep. About two o'clock in the morning, I wake up. Honestly, my body is frozen, I can't move. <laughs> yeah, every muscle I had in my body and muscles I didn't even know I had. And the fat was sore. Right. I phoned my wife and I said, Look, Tony, I'm in trouble here. What have I done? How did you allow me to convince myself in this stupidity? I'm thinking, <laughs> There's no way I can do this. And she gave me the strong advice. Gooch, you did it. And you've done these stupid things before. The one thing you can't do is let the fans down. You can let yourself down, but you can't let those people down. So suck it up. Go in the shower. Heat yourself up. So honestly, for two hours, I took the nozzle of the of the you know, I, I pulled it off the, the wall, and I I put hot water on every every part of my body. I fell asleep, woke up in the morning, went to the team doctor Willie Roker, who got uh, for sick, we lost last year to cancer, uh, and he he was a magic man. He could take care of anybody and anything, and I would let anybody in Europe touch my body except him. And I went to him and I said, Willie, really, I'm in trouble, kid. Uh, I, I got a play tonight. I don't know how I'm gonna get through this and he said, Terry, I can't massage you because the elastic acid that's built up in that fat body. If I gave you rub down, you would be expensive to the board. So here's what I'm gonna do. Here's some Chinese oil. He's one of those types of guys, believed yeah. in natural and stuff, and here's a couple of pills. Take a pill uh, when you get home, take a shower, Rub that stuff on you. At lunch, take a pill, love that stuff on you, uh, take a shower. Just before you're leaving for the rink, take this pill. Uh, rub this stuff on you, take a shower. Okay, so I followed. And then I was leaving his, his um, practice. I said, "But well, really, I've had to sign the DB, the ICE, the uh, International Ice Hockey doping papers I had to sign. So, you know, they could dope me. And I figured it's fifth division. There's no way they're going to check. And yeah. he said, no, no, it's all natural. Fast forward to get to the game. I come to the game. Uh, two hours beforehand getting get in the dressing room. There are thousands of people outside the building. So the pressure belts, the, the TV cameras are following me. I get in the room, everybody's, you know, it's all about me. And I'm thinking, and, and as everybody's making it about me, I stop. I took the time out to everybody. I said to the young kids and everybody, guys, thank you for allowing me to be here. Let's not make this about me. Let's make this about you. We're here for a purpose. The purpose is we're trying to save the rank. I'm only one small piece of this. Don't go out of your way. Let me be me. Let you be you. Don't be any different than what you've been the day before I showed up. Because if you do, you'll put too much pressure on yourself. You'll put too too much pressure on me. Let's just go out and have fun. So, fine and dandy, they would announce all the players to come out. Number six, blah, blah, blah. Number five, lights are out, spotlight. And then, of course, I have to come out last. And as I come out, I tri- I trip on the little plastic piece. That, oh, no. that, that the store, And I slide <laughs> out, and it's the most embarrassing thing, and it's on film. Oh, god! the place goes to thinking, you know, I'm a jokester and that sort of stuff. And through warm-up, I was watching The Goaltender, and I realized I was very lucky because The Goaltender was like the goaltender of shot, Yvonne Barek. <laughs> he couldn't stop the ball. Like he was, this kid was in trouble. Yeah. And uh, I knew that um, if I could just skate with the boys, I, I would be okay. Long and short of it, uh, thirty seconds left in the game. We're up twenty-four uh, nothing. And my coach turns to me and says, Gooch, uh, it's time for your hat trick." i had already scored two goals. Yeah. And six assists. Uh, and uh, I got out there. And I, I remember going to the goalie who could not speak any English or German. He was a Russian. And he, he looked, I don't know if you watched the movie Slap Shot, but that oh, yeah. scene where, you know, he's got all the jitteries. Yeah. So you yeah. remember that scene where he was, puck. We, we, we put so many pucks on this dude. It was ridiculous. And he was still up for it. So I stayed over to him and I said, Hey buddy, listen, I, I'm going to try to get my, third. he doesn't have a, a clue what I'm saying to him. Yeah. I, I've got to score. I, I got to score for the fans. My third goal. Uh, so when I do, please don't be upset because it's 24 nothing. Yeah, he, yeah, you yeah. know. And he goes, yeah, 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 yeah. He had no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> I score to, to to make it my hat trick. And as I'm skating back to the bench, I'm a little bit embarrassed, but the fans wanted that. They needed to see that. And as I'm skating, you know, when the, the team stands up and you, you know, I was going back to touch all the gloves of my yeah. teammates. You know how they do that? Yep, Their folks stood up. Uh, But I went to their pitch and did all of them, and they traded the truth at the end. And I was blessed with these kids who were embarrassed by this whole thing, and everybody made it about me. Um, They were so good because, honestly, they could have ran the garbage out of me. They could have knocked me into another planet. Uh, But they didn't. They were very, very respectful and allowed this moment to happen, It's a moment, uh, I would say, out of all the things that have ever happened to me, and I've had some great things, had some nasty things too, but out of all the great things that have happened at that moment of being 59 years old and living a moment that a lot of people will never get the chance to live once is, is truly a, a blessing to me and a tribute to all the people that sometimes want to give up. And I hope that that's the message that came from it when I did it, is not give up. And the rink is still open, not only because of that particular game. There were a lot of petitions, and and they realized how important it was for the kids to be able to play ice hockey in a city that was not built for it. And that's the moral, that's uh, the story in a nutshell, going back to, obviously, my playing career and where I am today.
1: Carrie that's an it's an absolutely incredible story and and you know you mentioned you know you want the message to be to for people to persevere and you know never give up on their dreams but also like people have to understand that the NHL isn't the only way to enjoy a hockey career I mean of course that's everybody's goal in hockey we everyone wants to play in the NHL but there's other ways and there's other avenues that you can still enjoy an incredible hockey career and play you know travel the world and learn so much and take everything you can you can from the game and you know like your your attitude towards the game has you know it's incredible because of these experiences that you've had and you know everybody's journey is different and you know some people would say you were yeah. crazy you were crazy for moving over there when you were 27 years old to follow your dreams but but really, were you? Because you, you got to you got to live out something that you know you would have regretted for the rest of your life probably if you didn't take that opportunity because you love hockey so much, and you know you wanted to, you you didn't want to give up on your dreams no matter what. So I really commend you for that and, and the battles that you went through. I know we didn't get a whole lot of opportunity to talk about your injuries and your concussions and you know the depressions and the suicidal thoughts and all the things that I know are part of your story. Um, and, you know, people can go back and find um, interviews where you talk about this uh, in depth um, on your own show about mental health and concussions. And I and I yep. encourage people to do that because you've got so many great messages and stories to share, Carrie, and you've had an incredible hockey career, like you said, over 2,000 points. Um, and when I look at it and, you know, it just makes me smile because uh, I know certainly proud of the, 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 the person you are right now, but... To hear the story and how you became who you are today, uh, Carrie, is really inspirational. And um, I can't, I know we've been talking here for a long time. We're over an hour already. Um, and there's so many more things I want to talk oh, to you about. Sure, yeah. I mean, I'm going to have to have you back on to talk about uh, the start of the NHL season. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on that kind of on what That's happened in, in its free agent signings and all of those things. But before, I'm going to leave that for now and I just want you to, uh, before I let you go today, tell me a little bit about what you've been doing um, to help grow hockey around the world. I know you've been involved in a lot of charity events. Uh, You've been to Australia, you've been all around the world um, trying to promote the game. Um, Tell me a little bit about some of the exciting events and things that you're involved with and we'll finish it on that.
2: Well, I can't thank you enough. I apologize. Uh, I get long-winded at times, but I think what's what's important is uh, hockey has given me everything, so I I, I must give back, and and so I, I've gotten involved in a couple of projects that have kept me involved with the game. Uh, you know how much you love it, you you're back playing from missing it for 12 years. Yeah, uh, it never dies. That 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 love and that passion never dies. So I got involved. Uh, with obviously stop concussion uh, and and my charity along with uh, connected mental health, and we started doing ice hockey games in in Christchurch, uh, uh, New Zealand was the first one in 2011, and from that moment I'd already done a bunch of celebrity games in in Europe, obviously playing there for so long and 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 learning that you know we all want to if you're not a hockey player and you're a musician. you want to be a hockey player. And every every hockey player wants to be a musician, and every rich businessman wants to be a sports star. And so I just realized you can bring all this together. And I started a bunch of charity games uh, in Europe and and did very well and then did a bunch here in in Toronto and Winnipeg. And I got a call to go to Australia, uh, sorry, New Zealand in 2011 and actually put on a real hockey game with NHL, AHL, East Coast League, and NCAA and college players, and uh, since that time, 2011, a couple of really lows, but it's been just a blessing. And along with that came the opportunity to work with the Hockey News and Sports Illustrated with our program called Gooch Live, which now has, of course, other uh, branches with concussed every Tuesday night. I talked about the uh, understanding of invisible injury. Mental health Mondays where we talk uh, extensively about issues mental health. Wellness Wednesdays is talking about all the great things that mental health brings you and, and keeping well and stuff. So the Ice Hockey Classic, when it was born, I never realized it would open up the doors that it had. Obviously, the Hockey News and Sports Illustrated. But being able to travel Around the world, and specifically New Zealand and Australia. I've been to China, been to Hong Kong. I've been to Beijing. Been to the games, the NHL games there. Um, I have grown a, an incredible uh, network of people that are just as passionate as I am for the game. And once we get out of this pandemic, and we get back to living what I hope is a normal hockey life, even at 62, I'm not shutting down early. I'm going to be going hard to bring this great game as best I can to people that have never experienced it and people who have experienced it that maybe want to just be a part of something bigger than the game. And I think that's what our ice hockey classic is. It's not bringing two NHL teams to a country, which is absolutely amazing. It's about bringing the youth NCAA players, AHL players, OHL players over and playing in front of massive crowds We've got Brent Burns there. We've got Chris Trujillo, who's now with Seattle. We've got Kyle Kutuz, who's, who's retired. Senek uh, Kanopka. Chris Darling. Uh, just great. Uh, Scott Darling, sorry. Uh, so many great players have come along with us to allow us to go into the, into the cultural part of the game and play with kids and, and show fans how much this game means to us and how much it can give back. So uh, I've been really honoured to be able to bring the Ice Hockey Classic. It would have been our 10th year in 2020. Um, unfortunately, the pandemic had slowed it down. But uh, uh, in 2022, we are planning uh, an outdoor game in Queentown. are working on coming back to Auckland and Beninan. In Australia, we're going to go to Adelaide, Melbourne, and hopefully Sydney or Brisbane. Uh, so the future looks bright. We just need to get this craziness behind us and hopefully uh, we can meet you over there and we can have a hockey game. I'd love to be on the ice with you. I'm just going to have so much fun with the boys uh, when we get a chance. So I'm looking forward to that.
1: Yeah, Gooch, I really hope we can make that happen. And uh, just to to end things here, I want to thank you so much for all the hard work that you've been doing. I know how – you don't know how much it means to people over here in Asia to have – to have somebody like you, and, and when, when events happen in China, when events happen in New Zealand, when events happen in Thailand or Malaysia, uh, we need great people in the hockey community, in the hockey world, and great expats like yourself who who take the time to give back to the game they love and to help grow it around the world. And if it's not, if it wasn't for people like you, Gooch, uh, the game wouldn't be growing as fast as it is. Over here. So, thank you so much for everything that you do. Gooch Live is an incredible program. Um, I wish you guys nothing but the best for you and Jordan. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to the hockey season. And uh, we're going to have to talk again soon, my friend, because we have more to talk about.
2: Well, I can't thank you enough and giving me this platform. And I'll tell you what, uh, next week starts a training camp September 22nd. It's fantastic, and I look forward to getting you on our show. We're going to be talking about every division. So I love uh, you know, the second week in September. I'll get Jordan contact you, and we'll get you on and get the perspective of how excited everybody over there is about the new season. You can ask all the questions that you need to ask because we're digging deep right now. We're getting all of our, our analysts and our journalists together. We're a small little company. Uh, but we're really excited about bringing ice hockey to you and to everybody around the world, and we're glad that you're a part of us. So uh, thank you for taking time with me today.
1: Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, Carrie Goulet, the Gooch, for being on Across the Pond Hockey Talks. That was Across the Pond, and that's a wrap. All right, Gooch, that was incredible, man. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know I, I'm keeping you up late at night here, and so uh, thank you so much for no, giving me don't. some of your hey, time.
2: Thank
1: you, sir. Yeah. Right on, buddy. All, All right, take care, Gooch. You. Let's talk again soon. I got lots more questions for you, especially with this. Uh, yeah, yeah, op- yeah, this the, the offer sheet offered to Cockney I wanted to get your opinion on that one. Well, you know what? We're
2: going to do... We're gonna start not this weekend, the weekend after, but you can I can send you we're actually doing a show on Wednesday about that. So we'll send you the clip.
1: Sounds great. Sounds great, Gooch. Okay. All right, take care, after, bud. Yep.
2: And we'll talk about all the divisions. Okay, buddy. Sounds Thanks. good, Kerry.
1: Take care, bud. Bye. Have a good have a good day. Thank you, thank you, thank you to our amazing sponsors, the China Hockey Group. Wheel Hub Asia. AccessoryHouseGlobal.com, Yardley Brothers Beer, and of course, Sunset Studio. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at AcrossThePondHK. Email us, send in your comments and questions to the show at any time at AcrossThePondHK at gmail.com.